Hello everyone, my name's Debbie Evans from UK Column. I'm the nursing correspondent and as you all know I have been absolutely determined to get some answers for those that are suffering vaccine injuries and I'm delighted this afternoon to be able to welcome Adam Rowland. Adam has been suffering from severe adverse reactions since having the vaccination in January 2021. Today he's going to tell his story and quite honestly if it doesn't move all of you that are watching I don't know what will. Adam has had the most horrific horrific experience but as I introduce Adam I want to remind also everybody watching that many of these people with vaccine injuries are extremely young fit healthy people who have got no medical histories to speak of in the past. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Adam, who's going to tell us who he is and how he's come to contact UK Column. Adam, welcome. Hiya, Debbie. Uh, really pleased to be here and um, really, really grateful for you for uh, having me on. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not just speaking on behalf of myself today, speaking on behalf of you know, everybody who's been affected by uh, the vaccine, who's been injured, because um, there's an awful awful lot of us out there Debbie that are just not being heard and um, we're being ignored by the government uh, we're not getting an NHS care uh, and quite frankly it's a it's a horrendous nightmare that I wouldn't wouldn't have wished on anybody um, so yeah it's because uh, what's happened to me Debbie I'm just really really keen to speak out and raise awareness because it it's got to stop it, it's got to stop and Adam you know let's let's tell everybody but who who you are because you are a very very fit athlete or were a very fit athlete you've been cycling all your life a athletics has been your life sport has been your life and of course you reached the pinnacle of a career in sports physiotherapy with huge clubs you know sports clubs tell us a little bit about that and you know what you were doing before you had the injection yeah, Debbie. Um, so ever since being a kid, really, you know, just just like you know, many boys and girls up and down the country, you know, I've done done sport, you know, all my life. Um, literally from you know secondary school, you know, every single day of my life. Um, and then obviously finishing school, um, still carrying on with the sports socially, uh, cycling, uh, rugby, um, and obviously looking after myself, sort of going to the gym, etc. Um, and then. Basically, what happened, obviously, because I was so inter interested in, in my sport and always been involved in sport. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I was never gifted enough to be a professional sports person. I decided to go down the next best, best, next best route and train to be a, a physiotherapist, um, a strength and conditioning specialist, and uh, was lucky enough to work in professional sport for the last uh, 20 years of my life, uh, working um, within professional uh, Professional ballet to begin with, believe it or not. Um, then did a little bit of stuff in professional football. Um, then majority of my career has been in professional rugby, rugby league. Um, lucky enough to um, work for and represent my country, so England in rugby league. Um, and also fortunate enough as well to work with the military, um, so all the forces in this country. Uh, working on regional rehabilitation units for the injured servicemen in this country. So, you know, very privileged to do that. And I also worked on a um, 
operational base overseas, um, you know, where op- operations are going on for the military over there. So again, really enjoyed that. Um, and then latterly, I was working in the USA and all over the world, um, some high profile PGA golfers. Um, so again, very, very fortunate. Um, you know, my job was my dream, if you like. It, it wasn't work to me, it was my passion. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to do that for 20 years um, up until getting this vaccination. And I think you're um, underselling yourself there, actually, because, you know, Adam, viewers won't know that we've had um, long Zoom conversations about your story. And I know that you've done emergency courses with the Royal College of Surgeons, your postgraduate and strength and conditioning specialist. You have all sorts of postgraduate qualifications. So you're extremely highly qualified and you really were at the pinnacle of your career. And since since having the injection, which we'll come on to in a minute, um, we need to say to people that you've actually lost everything. You've lost your home. Um, you've sadly lost your wife. You're, you're estranged from your wife now. You've lost your dignity. This is a very difficult interview for you to do because you've always been extremely fit. You haven't had to ask for help from anybody. And now you've had to move back in with your mum, where your mum is a full-time carer for you. So the trust in the system has disappeared and your life has literally collapsed around your ears almost overnight. Um, Am I right in saying that? Yeah, you're exactly right, Debbie. I mean you know the words that you use to describe it are all right but it doesn't tell you the day-to-day torture and hell and the emotional devastation that it's done not on myself but um you know my family um so yeah um you know i was super fit my resting heart rate was 38 beats per minute i was the fittest i'd ever been in my life um you know all, all the way through just getting fitter and fitter you know people thought i was a lot younger for my age was fitter than most of the athletes i was looking after and then yeah, I get I get the vaccinations and then, you know, I start to immediately start to get health trouble off the back of that. And then as a result, um, you know, myself and my wife and my, you know, my daughter. So I've got two daughters and two stepchildren I brought up. Um, but because of the loss of my wage, you know, we've ended up losing losing the house that we had together. Um, you know, my, my wife and daughter in temporary accommodation struggling to get another house, you know, struggling to be able to afford another house. Um, my wife was working from home and she wasn't able to care for me and look after me. And it was too much of a strain on her because unfortunately, during all this, um, my wife's mother passed away as well. So that put a massive strain on things. Um, uh, and she, yeah, she wasn't able to care for me. Um, you know, this last 12 months, I've spent four months in hospital and probably I don't know, maybe 10 A&E visits. Um, I can't tell you how many different consultants and doctors I've seen. I may be talking about 20 now, maybe. Um, But it's just been an absolute nightmare. And um, you just never imagine it would happen to you. Um, And what's devastated me is, you know, I'm a medical professional. um, And the contempt that I've been treated with and some of the, the words and stuff that have been said to me. It's, um, it's been really tough, Debbie. Um, but other human beings who, in a caring medical profession, would say those things to me and treat me like this. And um, 
it's one of my motivations for coming on because um, I want to turn what's, you know, I've lost everything now, you know, I can't exercise, I can't even put my bin out at the end of my driveway because of my breathing and my chest pain. Um, you know, I can't do any of the things that people take for granted. I can't walk my dog. You know, I've had to give my dog up to my wife. Um, you know, I can't take my grandson to the park and push him on the swings. Um, and for all that to be taken away and then be treated how we've been treated by the NHS and this government, um, I just it needs to stop, Debbie. And um, that's why I'm speaking out because I want to turn this into a positive and. Um, you know, people need to speak out and, and tell the truth about what's going on because, you know, our mainstream media, um, it's just absolutely criminal how they're treating us. It's its criminal. It's, it's disgusting. Um, I would never treat another human being like this. Um, I cannot tell you how badly that, that myself and we're all being treated. I cannot tell you. I can't describe it. I have spoken to so many people with vaccine injuries and they're all saying the same because at the end of the day, for whatever reason, and your reason for taking the injection was because you were looking after a very sick mother-in-law and you were told that unless you took it, you would risk her health or her life. So that's why you took it. But I think now's a very poignant point to show our viewers what your life was like before you took the vaccine. So you very kindly sent in some photos of you with that club and some video of when you were being interviewed on YouTube and I know that you find this very difficult to watch and to look at but I thank you for sharing it because I really think it's important that our viewers and listeners see who Adam Rowland was before the injection so let's have a let's have a look now. Uh, Adam Rowland, physiotherapist you still feeling jet lagged, Lucas? Sorry, man. Still feeling jet lagged. What are you in a competition to be with us? <laughs> what is the actual issue with them? For example, if it was a muscle, a muscle injury, a muscle overload, we we call them sort of myofascial, sort of a low grade overload. Uh, we'll be looking at hydration would be key for that because uh, if you're not hydrated, you know the the thought is that your muscles uh, aren't as pliable and. Uh, and makes you more susceptible to those kind of injuries. All those markers look at stress to your system, to your whole body. So it's just showing us how your whole body is responding to load. So it could be, stress can come in many forms. It's not just the training stimulus. You know, it's whether you're not sleeping, it's the psychological pressures of playing and everything. It all fits into that. So we, although we look at like knee to wall as a range of movement thing, we're looking at the whole picture you know, not, not just one thing in isolation. Post-training post again, uh, I think it's always really important. Like people just think you're standing there chatting on the same spot, uh, watch, watch, watching the training session uh, all day. But, I, you know, obviously we, we do chat, but, you know, you, you've got to get to learn to know your players inside out. You know, you, it's not only on the bed, you're watching how they move. You can see if they're sort of compensating in training. So we're watching exactly how they've been throughout the training session, seeing if they're struggling with any aspects of training. It might be deceleration, which could be quite a common one, or acceleration or change of direction. Uh, and then following training, if, uh, if we feel it's appropriate for them to, to, to fully train, which uh, generally speaking, you know, they shouldn't be out there if they can't do the large majority of it. We'll look at how to best manage that injury for, for the next day. So for example, if it's something that 
that's still slightly inflammatory, you know, we'll uh, we'll shut it down. We'll put ice on it. We might compress it. We can use stuff like the the game readies and recovery pumps. Uh, there might even be some sort of uh, not too deep soft tissue strategy, some like lymphatic drainage stuff to encourage the uh, lymphatic system to get uh, get rid of all the inflammatory sort of debris around the injury site. Um, yeah, so it, dep it depends on the uh, particular injury, really. Okay, so Adam, let's get to the, the day that you went and had the vaccination. Now, as I understand it, you went to a vaccination centre and you walked in and tell her, tell me, were you given any advice uh, were you given any information were you given a vaccine leaflet a patient information leaflet were you told of perhaps any side effects were you did you give a full medical history what happened when you got to the vaccination center yeah so looking back it should have been you know alarm bells from the beginning really so the vaccination center was funnily enough at the uh, at the stadium where I used to work at with this professional sports team, they'd hide the stadium. Um, it was absolute carnage. Um, you know, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of people queuing up in multiple queues. Um, you'd get shown upstairs, and then it was a room upstairs with about... at the time. So you just sort of got ushered through. It sort of divided it. It was open, really, so there was no no privacy, so there would be no medical, you know, there was no question about interviewing you for any past medical history or any medications that you're on. You know, as a medical practitioner, you know, you're, you're taught and you have to keep loads, notes for legal reasons. You have to take someone's medical history. You know, you need a full subjective examination, you know, subjective history, sorry, before, you know, you um, give any intervention especially if it's sort of a pharmaceutical one, but yeah, there was absolutely none of that. You just sat down in your chair, roll your sleeve up. I do remember asking them which which vaccination it was, and they said to me, it's AstraZeneca. So I said, well, have we got a choice uh, in the matter? And they said, no, there's no choice. Uh, this is what you're having. Um, and it was literally just roll your sleeve up, and they just, you know, put it in, put it in the, put it in the arm. Um, you know, it wasn't a doctor, it wasn't a nurse, you know, it was somebody who'd obviously been trained up um, to do these things. And it was literally giving you the vaccination. Um, they After the vaccination, they gave you a card with the number on, like a receipt for the batch number. I do remember that because I did keep that briefly. Um, there was nothing, nothing about side effects or possible, you know, injuries or adverse reactions. Didn't get any warning of that. And then basically they said to me, um, if you walk to the far end of the room, because it's like a big conference room, um, you'll be ush ushered off into a holding room and you you need to sit there for 15 minutes in case you have any adverse reactions. If you don't, then you're free to go. Um, and that's exactly what happens. So you went home and you felt fine until about six hours after. And then you weren't feeling so well. So what happened then? Yes, yeah, so I went home and, and just, just into the sort of tea time, early evening time it was, started to just shiver, shiver an awful lot, you know, shiver more than probably I'd ever had in my lifetime, maybe once when I'd had flu once, I'd compare it to that. 
So developed like this real high fever, um, and then it was literally in bed then for four days. Um, you know, all coats on, um, heating on full blast, just uncontrollable shivering in bed um, is, is what happened. Um, and then that subsided after about four days and just felt like, you know, post-virally, to be honest with you. Um, you know, as you would if you'd... I've only ever had flu once in my lifetime, funnily enough, and never really had any other, you know, any other experiences like it, so it was hard to compare. Um, so felt virally and felt weak and obviously, you know, was working back in work. Um, but then some strange things started to happen, um, probably about, again, difficult to remember, but probably 10 days, 10 days in, I noticed these things. But it was my wife that actually noticed um, and obviously I did as well, started to uh, develop insomnia. It was like someone had turned a light switch off. Um, so I was really struggling to get to sleep. And then as I was dropping off to sleep, when I was finally getting to sleep, because the insomnia sort of came after this, I started to, um, it's hard to describe because, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't think they fit in the medical sense, but I started to develop fits, if you like, in bed. So be dropping off to sleep and be asleep and all of a sudden I'd start shaking my legs and arms about violently and you know obviously waking my wife up and she was like you know what are you doing um and uh, yeah all I remember is just waking up with horrendous pain down my left arm and my left leg pains in my legs like nerve pain or it was just horrendous um and then that that carried on all the way you know these episodes got more and more so that was january 21 and then it happened all the way up to march and it got to the point with march where i couldn't sleep um i was going three four and five days having one and two hours sleep a night um, so it's beginning to really affect my work and at this point i had to phone up my bosses in work uh, which is really sort of embarrassing because um in professional sport you know you've got to have your arms and legs hanging off before you, you don't turn in for work, you know, cause you're, you know, a senior member of the team and, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got the full playing squad relying on you. You can't just take time off work unless you're seriously ill. So, you know, that's just to let the viewers sort of know that I wouldn't have ever took time off work. And it, you know, it was really embarrassing for me, you know, I hadn't taken time off work in like, you know, over 10 years, you know, a day off six. So, it, it, you know, it really affected me having to phone in. And I phoned in and I just said, I don't know what's going on with me. Um, you know, I said to my line manager, um, I said, I'm just going to have to take some time here. I said, I'm really struggling. Told them I'm asleep, the fits. And then, um, you know, I told them that I'd approach my GP about it and what my GP had said. But the thing is, what, I, what, I, what I've noticed now is that nobody's really mentioning anything to do with the vaccine. So did you think that it could be to do with the a side effect with the vaccine or was it because people were saying to you don't worry you know it's it's anxiety it's your imagination when did the doctors start taking any notice of what you were saying or at least investigate or did they bother in fact oh no debbie so um i think i made two phone calls to the gp so at that time in the uk i don't know where, where, how everyone else was locally but you couldn't get a face-to-face -face appointment you know because you know, because of the COVID. Um, so it was a phone call and it was a phone call and it was like, oh, you've got panic attacks. They're panic attacks, those things that you're having at night. So I was like, right, okay. Um, you know, never had a panic attack, so it's hard for me to know what one is, um, you know, and so I just, 
yeah, I just believe what the GP said and thought, well, yeah, it's fine. It'll pass if it's a panic attack because he didn't sound too worried. So why would I be worried? Um, so again, that that was like, you know, around about March time. Um, and then I had to phone him again because it was just getting worse and worse. Like I say, when you're having time off work, like, you know, it's like seriously affecting you. So, you know, he he, he offered me like, antidepressants um, at that time. And I, I think I briefly took them for about a week and it, it made me horrendous. And I was just like, and I phoned him up and I just said, they're making me worse, these things. And then he tried to change them again or something like that. But it was all done over a telephone and I wasn't I wasn't comfortable with it really. So, you know, I stopped these antidepressant drugs because I just felt like, you know, I wasn't down or anything. So I, I couldn't really understand what it was really. But, he, you know, the GP was obviously still not seeing me at this point. So, you know, like, you know, anything when... You know, my culture, where I come from, and, and probably most people's in the UK, we're, you know, we're hardworking people and, you know, you get an injury or something or a bit of an illness and, you you know, when you've always been fit and well, you expect to shake it off if you like. So, you know, I just thought it would be a bit like a cold or whatever. I just thought I was having a bit of a weird spell from, you know, a virus or something and I'd be better in a few weeks. So, um, so I spoke, speaking to my work and, like, they had to, I was so ill in reflection because they had to give me a phase returning to work over about, it was about three or four weeks, I think, in the end. It was when I think back, it was ridiculous. So, you know, I went back into work um fully back in probably in about the April 21. Um, and I just still wasn't right. I was still getting all these all these symptoms, but you know, you know, I was working and stuff, and I just I just blanked it out then until um until I got the second vaccination. And there we go, jumping forward now to, I think it was May, wasn't it? So you had the first one in January. And despite having all of these illnesses and all of these unexplainable symptoms, the doctor's not worried. So fobbing you off with anxiety, depression. Um, and obviously, you know, you've got no no explanation, except for the fact that, you know, you must just be having a bit of a, a weird few months which which kind of didn't give you any warning signs so you went and had the second one i think it was in may was am i right and the the adverse reactions that you got on the second one weren't as bad as the first one i think they only lasted a couple of days yeah that's right debbie so i, I got the second one in may 21 and i remember the day so even though you know i said that you know i was ill which i was i was still i was still exercising at this point and even though my performance exercise-wise wasn't quite as good as it had been in the past, compared to what I am today, you know, I was I was still, I remember being on the rowing machine, pumping weights and stuff, because I remember the day I went for the vaccination, I'd actually um, set a PB on the rowing machine in work. So <laughs> I went for the second one, and, and then I was, I had the same fever, but it wasn't as bad. I wasn't, I think I was bed-bound for one day after the second vaccination. And then I just felt shivery for the next two weeks, I would say, seven seven days to two weeks. Well, that's when, um, holy crap, if uh, pardon my English, but um, that's when all hell broke loose at about the 10-day mark after this, the second injection. You were still actually trying to convince yourself, weren't you, that you had been maybe overexerting yourself or that you'd maybe pulled a muscle or that, you know, somehow there was another explanation. 
So still you were you were thinking, oh, well, you know, the doctors aren't worried. Nobody seems to be worried. There's nothing to worry about. And then, as you say, things started to go horribly wrong. Tell us about the Sunday evening, Adam, because that's really when it all started, wasn't it? Yes, it was, it was Debbie. And, and I'll, I'll give you a little brief. I'll try and keep it brief before that. But I've noticed that um, before that Sunday evening over those after about 10 days, I started to notice chest pain. And again, with the chest pain, I could, it was felt like rib pain, like costochondritis. So obviously I've treated a lot of rugby players and things like that. So, you know, rib injuries, it's sort of bread and butter. So I just thought, oh, it's, it's inflammation on my ribs. And I thought, oh, I've overdone it at the gym. But I knew that my routine had actually made easier. You know, I know how to moderate, you know, exercise programs and I've been making it easier because of my health. So I knew that, that wasn't an explanation. And then I started to get stabbing pains in my chest, which was starting to get more concerning. So I'd actually been to A&E as well once in this time, and they told me it was an anxiety attack again at A&E. But then fast forward to the Sunday, um, and I'd actually had a, a moment in work where I'd sort of passed out in work briefly for a moment. So I'd sort of been all dizzy, had to sit down, didn't know what was going on. And then this was on the same Sunday after the game. Um, I was at home and literally all I remember is I, I went to, I was doing some work for the Monday, typing on my computer and I just, I went to stand up and I just was incredibly dizzy. Like, you know, that's it. I'm going to pass out and collapse here. And the next minute I was just covered in sweat, horrendous pain. Heart rate was just screaming. It was, you know, 170 through the roof, doing nothing. Um, and I literally couldn't move, um, struggling to speak. And um, yeah, I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, I'd never, you know, never, never had anything like that in my life um, before. So, um, you know, my family had to call an ambulance. What did they say? I mean, and I, and I want to just remind, go back a little bit, because we've already been told, um, well, you've already been told that you're suffering with panic attacks and depression. So now, You've called an ambulance. All of these symptoms. Tell us what they said to you. Yeah, well, it's it's quite horrific now. I know, but um, yeah. So I got taken in and um, obviously put on an ECG machine. Um, and they did the standard checks. Debbie, as you know, as as we both know, what happens in you know the hospitals up and down the country. So they did an ECG, um, and on the ECG, um, they found that my heart rate was going into my heart was going into VT. Um, so ventricular tachycardia is um, it's obviously quite a serious thing, um, and from that point, obviously they, um, they, you know, they admitted me to the ACU or the coronary care unit of the hospital because it was, um, you know, potentially life threatening at that point. And what did they say to you? Because let's explain to um, our viewers: ventricular tachycardia is when one of the ventricles of the heart beats very, very fast. So tachycardia is very very fast but they called the cardiologist didn't they what did the cardiologist say to you yeah so they kept me in hospital for a week uh called the cardiologist and the cardiologist it was a local hospital so he was bamboozled um he he, he said he thought it was brugada syndrome um because it was an athlete because he had changes on my ecg that athletes have in the heart I have an incredibly low resting heart rate and because of that they just automatically thought it's because i'm an athlete 
Um, he's got Brugada syndrome, um, which affects the conduction of your heart. And, you know, people can unfortunately drop dead on the field of play with it, you know. Um, so that's what they automatically assumed. Um, but having said that, he sent my ECGs off to a specialist heart and lung hospital, the local one. Um, and then in the meantime, they started to, um, it was horrendous. Um, I was really worried. Uh, I was telling him I was really worried. And the guy started to tell me it was anxiety and it was all in my head. Um, and anxiety was causing it. So <laughs> I remember having the conversation because I was absolutely shocked. I was thinking from my medical background, as far as I'm aware, that doesn't make any sense that anxiety could cause VT. So I actually, um, um, actually one of the club cardiologists who comes into one of the clubs, I was actually in conversation with him on my mobile phone as I'm in a, a separate room on, you know, high dependency unit for my heart. And I texted him and I, I texted him and I said, look, um, look, Rich, I said, could VT be caused by anxiety? I said, they're telling me it's anxiety here. And he just laughed. He said, no, absolutely no way it could be caused by anxiety. Um, so what happened was they couldn't find the cause at the hospital, tried to bung me on because I couldn't sleep at this point because I was still having all the fits in bed. Um, so every time I laid down, it was like I had vertigo, um, and this would trigger one of these little fits. So can you imagine when you're not sleeping and you know, you've got chest pain and your heart's going into VT, you know, I'm going to have a bit of anxiety, but... I'm not sleeping for days, so this man's, this cardiology man's uh, uh, answer for it was, I'm going to prescribe you an antipsychotic to help you sleep, and came to me and tried to put me on an antipsychotic. I refused the medication, uh, since requested my notes from the hospital, and there's quite a frank conversation between him and another doctor, an argument over whether they should prescribe it because of the risk, because of my heart at that moment in time, that, you know, this medication really shouldn't have even been considered to be prescribed um so yeah they they told me you know not to worry um they'd send send me to liverpool heart and chest hospital and i would get an appointment fairly soon but they couldn't find a reason for this vt um and said you know you're fine and go home and wait for this appointment so they sent you home again adam and yeah. you stayed at home but Am I right in thinking, and I can't remember whereabouts it was that it happened, but at some point, someone did a D-dimer test, but they didn't tell you they'd done a D-dimer test because actually the D-dimer was raised, which was significant because this could indicate blood clots, but nobody told you that. Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, while I was in the hospital, um, I've only since found this out, Debbie, that um, I requested my notes after my... Uh, awful experiences of, of recent and um when i looked on my notes i had a very high d-dimer um which you know i know is a uh, used as a blood clotting uh, marker so they were actually suspecting um potentially blood clots on me at that time but i just i didn't know about it unbelievable so all the time they're fobbing you off with either not giving you information that you should have had which was crucial that you should have had or they're telling you that it's in your head, it's a panic attack, or yes, we can see that you've got ventricular tachycardia, but sorry, we can't tell you why. So they're fobbing you off completely. And so because of the person that you are, and you know, you're a proud man, and you're an independent man, and you've always, you've always looked after yourself, and you've always respected your own body by looking after it, because that's why you're so fit. 
what I could not believe, and I know that our viewers and listeners are not going to believe either, but you did the unthinkable, something that I couldn't even begin to think of as an able-bodied person. You actually decided to test your body and you walked the three peaks. Yeah, so what I did, Debbie, was I thought, well, you know, these are cardiologists and, you know, they're telling me there's nothing wrong. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they wouldn't let me home with VT if it was serious, right? Um, and they told me, you know, it'll probably be about eight weeks on the NHS. So uh, what I did was, like, you know, I'm a sports person, so, you know, you have to get back as quickly as you, as you can. And, and my life is, you know, like I say, I've been lucky if I took one day off of exercising, you know, 40 years or 30 odd years so you know i paid privately to speed up to negate the nhs because i just wanted to get this you know i just wanted to chalk a line through this thing and know what was going on and i just thought in the meantime i thought well they said my heart's all right so i just it was a lovely summer's day you know i looked at the forecast so the next day i went and did the yorkshire three peaks which is um the three hikes peaks in Yorkshire and I've done the national three peaks and it's actually harder than the national three peaks so yeah I went and did that on my own and then you know I thought well you know it's not super strenuous but you know it'll give me an idea of where my heart's at so I thought you know I'll, I'll go and do that and I did it um to be fair I probably only had one or two incidences of the VT that short episodes while I was doing it but I didn't push myself to my you know to my maximum as I, as I normally would but yeah I thought I'll go and test it and see what it what it feels like, and um, I knew I wasn't right, but I've, I got a little bit of confidence from that because obviously, you know, it's quite strenuous. Wow! I mean, all I can say is wow and huge admiration. And and for viewers and listeners watching, because it was the first question I asked Adam was how long did it take him, and it took him ten hours for anybody that's that's wondering. So I want to jump forward now to August twenty twenty one, and in August. You were getting tinnitus, you were jaundiced, you had rashes, you had cramps in both calves, you had muscle cramps, vertigo. And in fact, this was the time where you actually had to stop driving because you'd been driving up until then. So that was August down the chute. And it, it was, and, and I remember you saying that one uh, on one occasion you looked at your watch and you couldn't read your watch. It was blurry. Yeah, so that, when I think back, Debbie, that had been going on since like the July, I don't know exactly what date, but you know, I've noticed that, yeah, I can't read my watch and I really struggle to read. Um, you know, I, I love reading, you know, read all my life again, you know, I'd come home from work and I'd be studying more, you know, uh, reading books for pleasure. I'm not really someone who watches TV. Um, and I noticed that, you know, I was really blurred. So at that point I actually, I went and got my eyes tested twice at two different independent places. Um, I paid for like a, it was an extra 40 quid for some sort of scan, what they do behind the eyeballs now to look at the blood vessels. Because um, I'd never had glasses in my life and my vision's always been absolutely perfect. Um, and I was noticing all these real big blood vessels, like bloodshot eyes, but really prominent in my eyes. But they tested my eyes and both of them couldn't really find anything, you know, other than I couldn't read the stuff. But then glasses, you know, their intervention wasn't wasn't helping. So it was kind of pretty weird. The rest of 2021, I mean, we're, we're talking now, you know, September, October and November, you're still going through all of these symptoms. And I believe the doctors are still telling you it's panic attacks. And at one point before Christmas, they were prescribing you a very strong antidepressant called venlafaxine, which made you feel 
a lot worse. So rather than going to the doctors and to A&E and to all of these consultants appointments to get help, you were being thrown pretty much everything, including the kitchen sink, because nobody really knew quite what to give you. But what you were being given was actually making you feel worse. Yeah, so David, I was really, really desperate. I cannot tell you mentally what I was going through at that stage. Um, I, I'm going to be honest here for the viewers. Um, and, you know, I remember being honest to my employers in work because this is, I got to the point where I had to resign from work because I wasn't capable of working anymore. Um, and for me to resign from my job, I'd worked 20 years, Debbie, for this. You know, for someone to resign, it just it was so hard for me to do, but I had to do it because I couldn't I couldn't do my best and it was my reputation and I, I couldn't, you know, I can't look after a bunch of professional athletes. So I had to resign. So I was literally suicidal at this point on a daily basis because I was like, people are telling me there's nothing wrong with me. I'm like, what's going on? So, you know, I was desperate to believe that there was nothing wrong with me, even though I knew that there was. Um, and then, you know, my GP again says, antidepressants, I don't know what to do here. Um, you know, what can we do? I, I want to try and help people. I don't know what to do. No one had mentioned vaccine injury at all. I hadn't even considered it. It was only sort of briefly after that. So, you know, I tried these antidepressants for like three weeks and it just made me even worse. And I was just like, I was so desperate, Debbie, honestly. I can't. My world was devastated because, you know, I had to tell my wife that I resigned from work, you know. I just, and I didn't know what was going on. And I just thought, you know, I, I told myself in my head that maybe if I take two weeks off work, it's a virus still. It's a virus. I'll get over it and I'll be able to go back to work. But just the fact to have to resign from my job because I wasn't physically and mentally up to it was just... It's just haunting me to this day, Debbie. It's it's just not right. I just want to tell viewers and listeners that this morning, you and I both attended the MHRA board meeting. And I know that there have been a lot of comments about it from people I've heard already with anger. Because if Dame June Rain and the MHRA, Alison Cave, Henrietta Hughes are listening. This is absolutely abhorrent. You were passed around and continue to be passed around because I just I just can't reiterate it enough. You have been an independent, highly skilled, highly qualified medical professional for decades. You've worked all your life. You have a family. You were raising a family. You've got a grandson. And your wish is all you want to do now, isn't it, is push your grandson on a swing and to walk your dog that now your wife has to look after. Those are your two biggest ambitions. And this is from a man that's walked three peaks. I mean, Adam, you know, as we go on, and let's let's carry on because Christmas, Christmas 2021 was particularly traumatic i know you couldn't eat christmas dinner you you were up and down having to move all the time because whichever position you put yourself in it was uncomfortable and the chest pains i have to reiterate to everyone these chest pains these are absolutely excruciating 
and they're continuous and you were feeling ill continually. And this is when you started to ask questions, wasn't it? This is when you started to say, do you think it's the vaccine? What did your GP say to you over, over that question? Do you think it's the vaccine? Yeah, um, I just got completely ignored. They didn't even answer it. It was like, obviously they'd heard it, but they just looked through me like at the wall behind me. Um, and then when I tried to make eye contact with them and look at them, you know, they looked at the floor. But it was like I hadn't said the question. It was just, I don't know, it made me feel even more, um, even more crazy, if you like, how, you know, that's what they thought of me. So it, it made me realise that genuinely that, you know, they thought I was, you know, mental or, you know, mentally ill or something, because I couldn't explain it any other way. It was disgusting. And you just had um, to keep on putting up with this, didn't you? You just had to keep on listening to this. They were being, ob they obfuscated you every step of the way. And then if we jump forward again to, to March, because I mean, you know, remember all of this time is going past. You had the jab over a year ago by now and still nobody's listening to you. Still nobody is hearing what you're saying or believing what you're saying. But then you got then you got sent to a different hospital where you actually met some of the professionals that you worked with, didn't you, um, within your sporting yeah. career. And that's when they were shocked and looked at you and said, Adam, what has happened? What what was that like to actually meet people that you knew at a hospital and, and to get that reaction? Well, it was interesting, Debbie, because um, I, I approached this hospital twice a and e because i was in horrendous pain with my circulation in my legs at this point um you know i couldn't lie down for more than three hours um you know if i would fall to sleep i'd wake up in horrendous pain and i'd be so fatigued but i literally couldn't lie there because of the pain in my legs and i'd have to get up and try and get the circulation going so i had to go to a and e massive hospital um and to be honest i don't know whether it, you know they saw my name and recognized it one of my old colleagues from another professional sports team, but they got me in quite quickly at A and E and saw me quite quickly. Um, and Andy spoke to me and said to me, "Do you want me to get?" He recognised me and said, "All oh, right." He said, "Do you want me to get someone else who doesn't know you to assess you?" He said, "Do you mind if it's me?" And I went, "No, I've got nothing to hide, Andy." I said, "I prefer if it is you. You know, someone who knows me." Um, so he, he assessed me. Um, he was just absolutely shocked. He didn't realise, he knew it was me from my face, but he was like, oh my goodness, what's happened? And I, I just told him, I just said, I don't know what's happened. I said, you know, I said, I mentioned about this COVID vaccination. I said, that's all I can think of. You know, I'd lost two and a half stone at this point in weight. My eyeballs were yellow, which he could see, face rashes all over my face. Um, you know, he could he could just, he was absolutely shocked. And then he, he said to me, right, um, you know, he said, we have standard procedures when people come in that, you know, what bloods we do and what tests we do. He said, I'll I'll try and do a few extra ones, if you like, as a professional favour, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and and that's what he did. He, he, he suspected that I had peripheral neuropathy, and that's what my pain was, and suggested that I needed to see a neurologist um, in terms of those symptoms. But, um, yeah, they, he was completely, they were very sympathetic with me. Um, but, you know, he, they, again, you know, the treatment that they offered is very, very strong medications. And I didn't want to go on strong medications like that without knowing the actual cause, you know, I just felt like treating the symptoms again. 
a little bit. He, he wasn't fobbing me off, but that's how it felt like. I was like, well, no one's investigating me properly here before you start chucking heavy duty medications at me. I think because I know, obviously, and I've spoken to you before and I know your story, I know what comes next, which I think is quite shocking. In that when you did actually get to see the neurologist, because you were referred on to neurologist, um, the neurologist um, laughed at you, actually laughed in your face and said something that you'll never forget with regards to Gulf War. Um, tell us about that, Adam, because it's shocking. Yeah, so Debbie, I was I was trying my best at this point to try and how should we say be reasonable and and try and communicate because I needed help off these people. So I saw one of the top professors uh, in the country actually, but it's certainly the top guy in our my area, and I'd actually paid privately to see him previously to this appointment, but to get to get it done quicker. I eventually got this NHS appointment to see him and I printed a load of stuff off about vaccination injury and, and evidence and various tests, you know, like various blood tests that were starting to come up positive for people with vaccination injuries. So I went and I thought he'd treat me, you know, like a, a you know, a medical professional, like he would be speaking to one of his colleagues. Um, because I have had that since with some colleagues, but I expected that of him. So I took all this information. Um, went to the appointment and you know he's saying how are you and I'm telling him how I am and I said to him look I said um, I said I really think this is vaccination injury you know um, you know would you care to have a look at all this information that I've printed off and this sort of evidence would you care to read it and um, you know can we what are your thoughts on it so he said oh thanks for doing that yeah I'll read it and then he just tossed it to the side of his desk and, and didn't read it um, and then he said to me yeah it could well be vaccination injury so I said, so I, I was a little bit enthused. I thought, oh, he's going to listen to me here. And then his next sentence was, he went, <laughs> but he said, um, we still don't know what's caused Gulf War syndrome. And um, it's been like 30 years. So he said, um, <laughs> you know, we're not going to find out what's going on with you. Um, and then just offered me, you know, another long list of medications to uh, treat pain and symptoms and said he couldn't help me. Um, so I was absolutely devastated. So he said he couldn't help you, and the long list of medications that you were offered were anti-epileptics, anti antidepressants. That's what they were offering you. And another thing that came up also was that you weren't being told about some of the test results that you'd had done, and this was regards uh, protein C and protein S, which would put you at high risk of clots. And nobody bothered to tell you that either, did they? I mean, everybody just evaded to tell you anything apart from fobbing you off with panic attacks or depression. So then we, we go forward to April where you actually had to catch a taxi. You had to actually order a taxi to go to your GP because you couldn't get there any other way. And I think this is this is another thing, too, I want to mention to our viewers and listeners who are watching now and seeing that obviously you're having to use oxygen at the moment. And that oxygen machine has been purchased at your expense of thousands of pounds because the NHS simply have not been giving you any of the help, even up until now, even up until we're speaking today. So when you went in the taxi to the GP and you were jaundiced and you were breathless, you said to the GP, basically, didn't you, believe me, listen to me, 
what did your GP react to that? Uh, honestly, Debbie, I was so, so ill. You know, I'd missed out on like two family holidays. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I hadn't been driving for months. So I got to the GP, eyeballs were yellow for days. I was just in agony. I felt like I was dying is the only way I can sum it up. And I, I you know, I stumbled into the GP office and he, he looked at me and he, I could see that he was genuinely worried at this point because I looked so ill. And I just said to the GP, I said, you've got to help me. I said, I feel like I'm dying. I said, if you don't do something, I said, I'm going to die. And um, he, he, t- he took my sats, you know, he, you know, the usual blood pressure and, you know, my oxygen sats. And, you know, they was fairly reasonable. Uh, and of course, because I was so perf- super fit, you know, I wasn't, you know, I fell, fell within the normal range, realms of heart rate. You know, my heart rate was only in the 80s or 90s, where previously it would have been half that, but that doesn't flag up because you're normal. However, my GP did look at me um, and I told him, how, you know, I could see how breathless I was. He said, I think you should go to A&E. And I said to him, I said, I can't go back. I said, I'm sick of, like, going to A&E and being told, like, here's some antidepressants. <laughs> I said, I can't put myself through it. I said, I don't feel well enough to go and sit there for hours and be told that again. So my GP did tell me to go to A&E, but I was so ill, Debbie. I, I didn't. I didn't go to A&E. I should have done, but I didn't. Um, if my doctor couldn't find anything, you know, and he wasn't prepared to write me a letter to, you know, back anything up, you know. So I went home um, and I lasted about another four to six weeks. And then um, I collapsed on the 28th of May. Um, yeah. Your nephew found you at home, didn't you? You, you? Your nephew came home and found you collapsed on the floor um, and obviously dialed 999. An ambulance was called. You were rushed into hospital. You couldn't speak. You kind of woke up in a bit of a kind of semi-consciousness and found yourself parked in a hospital corridor, I think, at that, at that time. And then you were moved to the cardiac ward. And this is where it all gets even more traumatic because I believe that you were in so much pain, so much pain. The staff told you to shut up. Yeah, I was getting told to shut up, Debbie. So all I remember is I was on a corridor for two days. Um, They thought I'd had a stroke um, when I read my notes because I couldn't hold my left arm and my left leg up. But eventually they realised I didn't have a stroke. And because of my history of my heart, they put me on a cardiac ward. Um, I was screaming out in pain. I was just never been in pain like it, and you know, I've still been in pain to this day with my chest since. Um, but yeah, because I was screaming out in pain, and they couldn't get the pain under control with IV paracetamol at first, and IV morphine. Um, they just kept telling me to shut up. They were saying, you know, you can't be in that much pain because you're able to scream out. If you were in that much pain, you wouldn't be able to scream. Was what they were telling me. Um, yeah, so. And they were wanting then, to, do you want to take a minute, Adam? Do you want to take a minute? No, no, it's fine, it's I know, fine. I know how traumatic this is and I know how difficult, and I, I need everybody watching to please realise how difficult this has been for Adam, not just physically to talk out, um, but also his self-respect, his pride, and that you're doing this for everyone else. Because during this stay in hospital, they tried to discharge you and you didn't, you said, I'm not fit enough to be discharged. I'm not well enough to go home. And you actually argued, didn't you, with the consultant and said, I want a lung scan. Give me a lung scan. And uh, the doctor or the consultant kind of 
fobbed you off and said, oh, well, it, it won't be any good. But if it will shut you up kind of thing, we'll do one. So you went for this lung scan because you were convinced there was something wrong. And then a junior doctor comes back to you, not the consultant. You never saw the consultant again, I don't think. The junior doctor comes back to you and says, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm afraid there are some pulmonary emboli that we can see. And for those of you listening that don't know what pulmonary emboli are, it's little clots or big clots in your case in the lungs which was extremely worrying. So then they said they put you back in the wicker basket, didn't they? And they passed you across to somebody, a respiratorial consultant. So now, yet again, you're being fobbed off to another consultant. But, of course, the Queen's Jubilee halted everything. So you went home and you just waited again. How long did you wait for, Adam? Yeah, so sorry, yeah. So yeah, I had three big PEs on my lungs, Debbie. They weren't just small, they were, they were huge. Um, I had three areas of non-perfusion, uh, three large large perfusion deficits in my lungs, which essentially they described as my lungs being dead, so they'd been dead for a certain amount of time. And I had hundreds of small emboli on my lungs as well. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't just a one little blood clot. Um, yeah, so there was a battle. Cardiology couldn't get rid of me fast enough. Never saw the consultant again. He told me it was in my head and anxiety. Uh, respiratory then diagnosed me with pericarditis and inflammation on my heart as well. While I was on the respiratory ward. Um, had a horrendous few days on there. Um, put on a side side room on my own. Um, you know, crash trolley. Thought I was dying. Uh, horrendous time. Never want to ever. Uh, think about it again i'm grateful for every day since that experience every day that i wake up i'm very grateful for since then um, it was very frightening um but anyway they couldn't really get my pain under control um and then you know saying to me basically calling me soft again um tried to pump me full of all kinds of strong heavy duty medications still not really helping me you know couldn't walk to the toilet um or I could, but not consistently. Some days they were having to wash me, um, but still told me I was hogging a hospital bed and I didn't need to be here and basically kicked me out. Um, so, yeah, I was very, very angry at this point, but they kicked me out and um, kicked me out to home. Um, I couldn't lie flat in bed because I was still getting all the fits. Um, by this point, I was trying to rest on the uh, couch in the living room, but propping myself up on a 45-degree angle just to try and sit sit down and um at that point that's when i just you know because of the fiasco in the hospital and them trying to kick me out and um messing about with all the medication they put me on blood thinners and they took me off them i decided to pay for a private consultation on my lungs and um, which my wife was present on as well um just to get a second opinion because i just thought you know these are a bunch of clowns these people now um absolute clowns and this was a consultant at the Brompton, wasn't it? And I think what shocked me was this consultant said to you that you were the 239th person that he'd seen like you. Yes, Debbie. So straight away, you know, I thought I was dying still. I still felt that bad. So my first question to him was, I'm a dying. And he said to me, because I said, I want to tell my children if I am. And he said, well, not imminently from a lung perspective. So then we went on and I said to him, well, what's going on with me? I said, you know, you've seen all my scans, is you've seen all my history. I said, is, I said, I've been asking people if this is vaccination injury. I said, in your opinion, is this vaccination injury? And he said, yes, it is. He said, it's categorically vaccine injury. 
He said, you're about the 239th or 240th person I've seen with very similar injuries to yourself. Uh, and this is just at one hospital. Um, and this was the Brompton in London, which is, uh, you know, one of the leading uh, chest hospitals in the country. It's actually, I think, in the top 20 in the world, Debbie. So, um, you know, these consultants there, um, you know, they wouldn't say something like that lightly. He then recommended he was really worried about my heart. Um, he said, you're on the blood thinners. Um, we had quite a detailed conversation about the prognosis for my lungs uh, and what that might mean or what it might not mean because he obviously can't promise anything. Um, and then he suggested I see one of his colleagues, um, which, um, which I then uh, proceeded again to pay privately. Um, I think it was £500 or £450 um, to see, see his colleague about my heart. I'm going to have to bring this up now because it's utterly shocking. Because after all of this, you get home and you're waiting for referrals and there's a knock at the door. And at the door is social services who seem to have concerns about the number of ambulances that you've been using and asking you not to use ambulances. And you invited them in and had a chat with them, didn't you, Adam? Yeah, so yeah, I was absolutely shocked. Um, and then it's two nurses. I mean, I remember one of them's name because he's still in contact with me now. He's such a nice gentleman and caring. I'm going to give him a mention, Rob. Um, so Rob and his colleague came in and um, they, they could see I was trying to sleep on the living room. They could see that I looked like walking death. And um, they, were, they told me why they were there. They said, you know, there's, you know, it costs X amount of money. I think, I think they said it costs a thousand pounds every time someone calls an ambulance out to the government. So they said it's their job to to make sure you know people aren't causing calling ambulances out inappropriately and 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 obviously rightly so because you know I wouldn't want to call an ambulance out if it meant that you know another person didn't get an ambulance and they died. So I totally took serious what they were saying to me, um, and then they assessed me, um, they listened to my story, they looked at my my medical evidence, they had some discharge stuff for me by this time, and they turned around and went. We're so sorry. Um, they said, um, again, they sort of said, in not too many words, they sort of said that they'd seen a few other people similar to me and were hearing stories of similar things. And then and they gave me their absolute full support. It absolutely touched me. They turned around to me and went, you need to stop taking chances. Because I was, I was at this point, Debbie, where I could have easily been in an ambulance every single night my my heart arrhythmia my chest pain was so bad I literally at that point in my mind it was like I was seriously thinking well would I rather die at home and be near my mother and my family and at least be comfortable because it was that stress from being in hospital and, and being told it was all in my head and the amount of visits to hospital I didn't want to go near another hospital again um, so to phone an ambulance out was like it was literally you know I'd only phone an ambulance out because they'd have access to a defib. Um, that was where I was at at this point. But they said to me, um, no, um, just phone an ambulance out. Don't be stupid. Um, and then, of course, at that point, um, I kept getting, I was another bad again. Like, you know, every, every day was just torture. I didn't know whether it was going to still be here. Um, and I actually ended up back on, they took, I had to call another ambulance in between and then they took me straight through to HDU and, at this point then um 
obviously it was on my medical record then from seeing this guy in London that it was vaccine injury. And then this time they completely treated me like totally different. They were all just coming up to me saying, yeah, we're really sorry. Yeah, this seems to be, it seems to be a thing, vaccine injury. So, you know, we were in July of 22 now. So almost 12 months later, they're obviously starting to see a few people filtering through with uh, things that are obviously on the suspicion index. So they, they sort of finally acknowledged, but they still didn't have a clue what to do. So at last, you've got acknowledgement and you've got people believing you and their attitudes are tra- changing. So everybody would think that's good. Then at least we're moving forward. But that wasn't the case, was it? Because um, you're up in the northwest and a lot of these appointments are at specialist units at the Brompton in London and in it, that involve a lot of traveling. And all of a sudden now, because you are vaccine injured and they're acknowledging that it was the vaccine, you're too sick to travel. So your GP refuses to organize travel for you to get you to the appointments that you need to go to because you literally can't get out of the house and you've run out of funds. You've spent all your savings. You've lost your home. You've lost everything, everything that you had, including your career. And now your GP saying, I'm sorry. You're too sick to travel and I'm not going to use my budget to organize transport for you. (laughs) I mean, is that I did understand that correctly, didn't I, Adam? You did, Debbie. That's exactly what happened. I was that unwell at this point, Debbie. I had to get somebody to advocate with my GP for me because I physically couldn't. You know, the trauma of trying to phone up and being fobbed off and being told this kind of stuff. um, I was so ill. That's exactly what happened. Um, essentially, um, yeah, so essentially, sorry, I was in Warrington Hospital on HDU. They they said I was too ill. They felt I needed a coronary angiogram, but they felt I was too ill and too unsafe to do it. So they said they'd give me drugs for microvascular angina and to try them as a trial um, and see me in a few months' time. So then I'd seen the private guy at the Brompton. He'd written a letter to my GP and said, this guy needs to come up as an urgent inpatient to see me um, and I'll you know, get to the bottom of what's going on. I'll try my best. My GP got the letter, ignored it. Um, I phoned up the GP to get this appointment or somebody did for me because I wasn't well enough to go to the surgery. GP refused on two occasions to come out to my house. Um, their answer they'd sent me half a litre of morphine through the day before that was their solution up your morphine by three times great thank you GP Um, I'll say at this point though the only thing in defence to the GP is because I was living at my mum's my GP had changed but anyway so GP was refusing me because he'd have to pay for an ambulance out of his budget um, and he wasn't prepared to pay for me to go to London and his scenario was I'll refer you to a local cardiologist as an outpatient at Wigan and Lee, which I'm not being funny, like the the chances of Wigan and Lee cardiologists being interested in vaccine injury are about zero. So I was absolutely furious. I was fighting for my life, Debbie, and I was getting some absolute idiot disregarding a letter from one of the top cardiologists in the country saying that I needed inpatient treatment and inpatient investigation on the NHS. My GP was thinking of his budget, you know, like it was his money. And um, at that point, Debbie, um, you know, I had to get my MP involved. Um, I had to phone the ICS, which is the equivalent of the old CCGs, which basically um, 
basically are in charge of distributing the money to the GPs. Uh, so if you like, almost like the bosses of the GPs. Um, and I also got back in touch with the uh, with Robert, the high intensity ambulance um, unit, who'd visited me and his partner about um, recalling the inappropriate number of ambulances out. And I told them what happened, and he was absolutely shocked. Him and his colleague actually visited my GP on my behalf and lobbied on my behalf and said, you know, this man is really, really sick. Um, on what grounds are you, you know, are you refusing it? Um, and he again told them verbally that he wasn't prepared to use his budget for me. Um, and then I, I spoke to Rob again and Rob said, like, look, I'll try and do some things. You know, I know people in the ambulance service. I'll try and do some things my end to help you. Um, and eventually that's, um, God bless them, that's what they did. Um, by this time, I was known to a few local ambulance crews. People knew my story. Um, paramedics had also told me stories about how some of one of the crew, one of their colleagues, had been affected by the vaccine and had heart trouble and still wasn't back at work. Um, they were telling me how many young people they were picking up with heart trouble, um, which they'd never done before, and strokes. Um, so the majority of the ambulance crews, nine out of ten of the ambulance crews, were all telling me this was a real thing and they were all really sympathetic. So off the back of that, eventually I had a nightmare getting my GP to actually write the referral to London, to the hospital. So when I convinced him I could get an ambulance, he eventually did that. It took another two weeks. Um, it took two weeks of threats, to be honest, not things that it's nice to have to do when you're not well. Um, and in the meantime, um, you know, Rob and Co and people at the ambulance, the Northwest Ambulance crew knew about me said to me, as soon as you get your date through, phone us the day before and don't worry, we will get you to that hospital. And God bless those people, Debbie, because without good people like that, then I just dread to think because, you know, I appreciate there's a system in the NHS and there has to be a system for a reason because the system's bombarded. But, um, you know, as an autonomous practitioner or any human being or qualified clinician, you know, there has to be a, an element of common sense. And thankfully, those people, um, went to battle for me, uh, and I'm forever grateful for them. And I think we'd echo that. And a big shout-out to Rob, you know who you are, and to your colleagues for getting Adam the help that he so desperately needs. Because I need to, I need to remind people watching that it's not just the health system, Adam, that you've had to navigate. It's everything. You've lost everything. You've had to navigate DWP because you've had no income, because you've lost your job. So you've had to micromanage and fight for everything. So to wrap everything up to, to current day, to where we are now, eventually you got an appointment and you went and you had bike tests, which they had to stop because you were so unwell and because the readings were going off the scale. But eventually, a consultant wanted to talk to you, didn't they, about what your diagnosis was. But they wanted to tell you themselves. And it ended up, that I think, was he on a golf course when he rang you to give you your diagnosis of what he thought was, was actually wrong with you? Yes, Debbie. So the treatment I got at the Royal Brompton is, um, you know, is out of this world. Um, you know, it's, yeah. So what happened was, obviously, I was in hospital at Brompton for four weeks, uh, many, many scans and investigations and blood tests, etc. Um, obviously, the man that I was under, the consultant was under, is a very important man and very busy man, obviously not just got me as a patient. 
Um, so the MDT had to meet with all the evidence, and he was he was actually delivering a conference in Barcelona, so he was about to get on a plane at the airport. The last week of my stay there, I was getting very frustrated because I was, you know, still poorly. Obviously, I've not made a miraculous recovery, um, and I wanted to know what was going on and why I wasn't getting any answers off the, you know, the ward doctors and stuff. And it was clear that, you know, not saying they were keeping something from me, but there was a reason why they were being, they were sort of avoiding me a little bit on their ward rounds and. You know, I don't think they knew what was going on with me. So I sort of put a, started to kick off a bit saying what's going on because they were on about me going home and I felt like I didn't know what was going on. Um, so the uh, the consultant, I won't name him because I, the only reason I won't name him, I mean, if people can ask him, can speak to me privately, I just know that this consultant's bombarded trying to help people like me because um, he's one of the only consultants that's... Um, you know, knows what's going on with this. I don't want to land him in any any, any trouble at this stage. So anyway, he phoned me from the airport and said, um, we've had this MDT meeting about you. Um, you know, I've, I've got what we think's going on with you. It's not what we expected. Um, you know, obviously, you've got a lot of things going on. Um, you're a little bit, you know, worse than what we possibly thought. Um, sorry to tell you, you've got, um, you know, you've got myopathy. So um, he said, I'll give you 10 minutes to let that sink in. He said, and I'll, I'll give you a call back when I get through passport, passport control or whatever he was at the airport, or he could sit, I think sit somewhere quieter to speak to me. Um, so I think he expected me to know what that was, to be honest. And, um, you know, I, I, I must admit, it's not something that I come across in professional sport, that diagnosis. So um, I didn't actually know what it was. Um, so he gave me 10 minutes. Um, and then he called me back and, um, yeah, he just sort of told me what the, the future plan is really for me going forward in terms of what investigations I need and, um, you know, potentially, you know, how it's not probably a great prognosis really, to be, to be quite frank. And I think that's where we are now, isn't it, Adam? Because the consultant felt that it was this serious that he had to tell you himself which is why he took time out and and sorry i thought it was a golf course but it was the the airport but why he felt it was so urgent to speak to you because it it is potentially a critical illness myopathy is disease of the heart muscle and as we're talking now adam you're still waiting for appointments you're still waiting for help you are now no and you could be waiting till after Christmas and this is the message because that you wanted to put out for other people so much you're waving red flags every single person that we speak to with vaccine injuries is so incredibly brave because I know how exhausting this is today which is why we're going to we're going to sign off in a minute and say goodbye to our viewers and and hopefully that everyone will share this video um, because people like you need help now you know, we need Dame June Rain, Dr. Henrietta Hughes, Baroness Cumberledge, Dr. Alison Cave, Professor Sir Munir Permahamid. We need all of them to have a conversation with all of you because it is quite utterly shocking. Adam, I want to thank you so much for being so brave and speaking out. And I know this has been completely exhausting for you. But as always, it's your voice that we need to hear. And I would like to give you the last word. So, Adam, if you've got a message for the professionals 
and for the public out there, what would it be? For the professionals, Debbie is. Um, I'm absolutely disgusted. It's horrendous how they're treating human beings that were told to do the right thing. I was told to do the right thing. I'm a professional person. I'm not misinformation. You're completely ignoring us. Our government, the people that are supposed to serve us. June Rain, you're supposed to be the chief of the MHRA, June. I watched you laugh at us. I watched you laugh. When somebody asked you a question today, I put questions into the board meeting that I attended a public board meeting today. You laughed at us with disrespect. There's enough evidence, June. There's evidence on the ONS government website. One in 301 people after the, the COVID vaccine are dying within 45 days. It's irrefutable evidence. Yet you're telling me that it's all been investigated. I put a question to you. Show me evidence what you're investigating this data. Make it transparent. You didn't answer the question. It's inhumane what I'm going through and what others are going through. And you think that we can just be ignored? I'm telling you this, June, and your colleagues, we ain't going to go away. And you can have it. When I die, you can have that on your mind. And if you can sleep at night, well, you disgust me. You absolutely disgust me how we've been treated. I would never treat another human being like that. I just hope you sleep well at night because you know what's going on. You know what's going on. We never got told about the AstraZeneca vaccine why it was pulled, so you know it's dangerous because you wouldn't have pulled it. Yet you haven't got the decency to come up and admit that you were wrong. You'd rather just sweep us under the carpet. I'm telling you, I'm not going to go away for all those people that are vaccinated until my last breath. You're going to hear from us. And for anyone else who's suffering vaccine injury, I know how it feels. And I'm telling you, you've got to start speaking up because these people don't want us to speak up. They want to sweep us under the carpet. They want to forget about us and they want us to die. And that's how they're treating us. And it's that simple. So I beg you, if you're suffering, don't take any more crap off these people. Speak to me. I will advise you on what tests you need. I'll advise you how to deal with these people as best I can. But people in this country, we need to start speaking up. And I'm just asking any of the members of the public who, you know, even if, you know, you've not been vaccinated and you, I'm not trying to be anti-vax. I'm just asking you to support us as human beings. Just, just please support us. So... You know, I've contacted mainstream media, and if it wasn't for Debbie on this outlet, I get told off mainstream media, and I can give evidence that they're not allowed to publish my story. They're not allowed to publish other people's stories. We're supposed to just be forgotten about Debbie, and um, no, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen.